Welcome to the First Contact Headache and Primary Care Podcast, where we break down topics in headache medicine for healthcare professionals seeing patients with headache disorders. This is a special episode from our Migraine and Women's Health mini-series. Thanks for tuning in. Hello, I'm Dr. Yelena Pavlovich, a neurologist and headache specialist at the Montefiore Headache Center and Albert Einstein College of Medicine in the Bronx, New York. And I'm so excited to be here today to kick off our Women's Health mini-series with a conversation focused on discussing hormones and contraception with your migraine patients. Today, I have Dr. Susan Hutchinson, a family physician and headache specialist who is a director of the Orange County Migraine and Headache Center in Irvine, California, and Dr. Kate Sticka, an obstetrician and gynecologist from Northwestern University in Chicago, who is also a reproductive pharmacologist. Dr. Hutchinson and Dr. Sticka, thank you so much for joining me today. I am so excited to have this conversation with you. I also am very excited to begin this new project. I echo that. I think it's wonderful that we're working together and collaborating. Well, it's so great to have this multidisciplinary team bringing together the very important information on migraine in women and management of migraine in women. We know that the female biology and ovarian hormones have implications for migraine across the female cycle and the menstrual cycle. Dr. Sticka, could you speak to what happens to hormones across the menstrual cycle? So the combination of both estrogen and progesterone really change from one day to the next across the menstrual cycle. In the very beginning, as your body is recruiting a new egg to ovulate, the estrogen, estradiol levels are extremely low. But as that egg and follicle develop, estradiol levels increase they peak at ovulation and just at the point in which the egg is released. Then the area that follicle turns into what's called a corpus luteum, and that produces both estradiol and progesterone. And those levels stay elevated for the next two weeks, developing the lining of the uterus so that it can receive the fertilized um, oocyte or egg. When that doesn't happen, when a woman doesn't become pregnant, just before menstruation, those levels drop. That makes the lining of the uterus unstable, it sloughs and the, uter the woman bleeds and that's her menstrual period. But the estrogen levels right at menstruation are extremely low until once again, an egg starts to develop. So you have this oscillating pattern of estrogen um, that drops extremely low right around the time mm -hmm. of menstruation. Thank you for that. Dr. Hutchinson, could you tell us how these oscillating hormonal fluctuations uh, contribute to headache and migraine occurrence across the menstrual cycle? And how do we operationalize these into actual diagnosis? Yes, great question. And thank you for having me. And Dr. Sticker, that was a great summary. And you mentioned about the precipitous drop in estrogen just before a woman's menses, that is probably the biggest trigger for what we call menstrual migraine. Mm -hmm. And that is recognized by the International Classification of Headache Disorder. So menstrual migraine by definition means a migraine that occurs within a five-day window. We call it negative two to plus three. What does that mean? It can start anywhere between two days before the onset of menses, which is the first day of bleeding, 
up to several days into the bleeding, specifically day three of the bleeding. And when you talk about negative two to plus three, there is no day zero. So day one is the first onset of bleeding. And to further elaborate on that, the way you then make a diagnosis, if you have a woman in your practice who says she has hormonal migraine and you're wondering, is it menstrual migraine? You're looking for that perimenstrual between the negative two plus three occurrence of migraine in that female at least 66% of the time or roughly two out of every three cycles. Keeping a diary or journal helps make the diagnosis, but it's not absolutely necessary to have the diary to make that diagnosis. That's so helpful. And as you said, diary is important, but not absolutely necessary. Could you speak to some other clinical pearls you might be using in your practice uh, in terms of a diagnosis of these menstrual migraine attacks and the phrasing that you may use in questions to your patients who may not actually recognize that they have menstrual migraine? Yes, that's great. Again, I really do encourage my patients to keep a headache diary. But I think what's important is to help a woman understand is she having what we call menstrual related migraine, meaning yes, she may have this perimenstrual association, but she may have migraines at other times of her cycle as well that are from totally different triggers. And that's the majority of women that have menstrual migraine, that they have these other non-menstrual migraine as well. And then I like to determine could there be some women in my practice that have what are called just pure menstrual migraine, meaning they only have migraine during that vulnerable time of their cycle. Why is that important? Because I think you want to plan your treatment accordingly because the treatment I think could be a little bit different if a woman has menstrual related migraine versus pure menstrual migraine. So as you said, sounds like the finite days of the minus two plus three that you spoke to of perimenstrual attacks really offer an interesting opportunity for targeted treatment of migraine. And could you speak to some of the approaches to treatment of both pure menstrual migraine and menstrually related migraine, uh, specifically to these finite number of days that can be targeted specifically with non-hormonal therapies? Yes, that's a great question. You know, so many migraine attacks, they, they just come out of nowhere. You can't predict them. Mm-hmm. If a woman is having regular menstrual cycles, then to some degree, menstrual migraine, the approach, you could be a little bit more preemptive, a little bit more prepared. And I think this is a great example of where we can offer short-term preventive strategies. Because why would you want to put a woman on a medication, let's say topiramate, every single day of the month if she's only having a migraine during that vulnerable five-day window. So when I think of non-hormonal treatment options during that menstrual time, I think certainly of triptans, if there's no contraindication to a triptan. Mm -hmm. And we know there's a lot of evidence on a number of triptans being used as short-term prevention. I think two of the ones to really think about would be frovitriptan and narotriptan Mm -hmm. because they have the longer duration of action, the longer half-life. So I think you could consider narotriptan or frovitriptan. You could dose it once or twice a day, depending on the patient Mm -hmm. and do it like for, you know, five to seven days in a row, because I tell patients as wonderful it is to treat your migraine, wouldn't it be better to prevent it in the first place? Another non-hormonal treatment that can be very useful are the non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. 
It could be over the counter. It could be prescription strength. But a woman could start that several days before her anticipated menstrual migraine and take it through the end of the uh, period. That also could, by the way, help if she was having menstrual cramps or what we sometimes call dysmenorrhea. I think sometimes uh, supplements can be helpful, and in particular, magnesium. There's some evidence in using that for short-term prevention. Another option would be if a woman was already on a preventive, maybe upping the dose of that during that vulnerable time. So again, there are many things that we can do that fit into that category of short-term non-hormonal prevention to help reduce the severity and hopefully the duration of a woman's menstrual migraine. We also have several G-pants now that are available. We also call them oral CGRP receptor antagonists. They've not been on the market as long as the triptan, so we don't yet have as much data, but I think those also could be reasonable treatment options during that vulnerable menstrual window. Fantastic. Thank you for that excellent and comprehensive summary of approach to non-hormonal treatment of these attacks. It does sound like we have a reasonable number of approaches, though none of them are specifically FDA approved as of yet, uh, but NSAIDs and tryptans that are well established, as you said, and JEFNs that are on the rise. Um, so uh, those are all very promising. Dr. Sticker, could you speak to us on the use of hormonal approaches to treatment of migraine, particularly to treatment of perimenstrual attacks, with of course the caveat, the understanding that use of exogenous estrogens is at this point contraindicated in migraine with aura? That's an excellent question. And what we're trying to do is to utilize the contraceptive hormones the reproductive mm -hmm. hormones of either estrogen and progesterone together or progesterone alone to both override the cycling that's occurring um, over the menstrual cycle, as well as to provide contraception because mm -hmm. many of these women also need, are in need of contraception. And so Correct. it's like giving two birds with one stone. So what that they, is a great point, Dr. Sticka, exactly. And so the tenets are we want to smooth out the changes and to make one day exactly the same from day to day to day. So there's no changes in the estrogen concentrations, um, as well as making the estradiol levels or the estrogen levels as low as possible. So you can accomplish this in two different ways. One, you can use the combination of estrogen and a progestin that you find either in birth control pills, in vaginal rings, um, and you just have to select a monophasic pill if you're going to use birth control pills that has the same estrogen and the same progestin in day to day to day, every single day. The mm -hmm. other thing that you do to modify it is that a woman does not have to have a menstrual cycle. She does not need to bleed. So the traditional 21 days on, seven days off, you don't need to do that. You can have her take a birth control pill every single day. Now, the problem with that is that the lining gets very thin and occasionally women will start having breakthrough uterine spotting, which is not dangerous, but it's annoying. And mm -hmm. so the solution to that is have her to stop the pills for maybe three, four, five days and then get right back on. Now, I personally am is not in favor of birth control pills because you still have the cycling every single day. If you look at the estrogen levels, 
on a woman on birth control pills, they go, they spike as soon as she takes a pill and then they go down again uh, by the next morning um, or before she takes her next pill. And a much better way to accomplish this is to get to utilize either transvaginal estrogen and progestins or transdermal estrogen and progestin. So there's patches, there's contraceptive patches and there's Mm -hmm. contraceptive rings. And when you're selecting that, once again, you have to pick the lowest estrogen possible. And and in these methods as well, you don't have to stop them to have a menstrual period. You You can take the vaginal ring out after three weeks and put a new one right back in. And once again, only take it out you know, for a few days when a woman is, is annoyed by the breakthrough spotting. And the same thing is true for a patch. So those represent your, your options in terms of combined estrogen and progestins. Alternatively, especially in women with bad, with aura, where you really don't want her to have estrogen at all, you can use the route of of a progestin only contraceptive. And there's a number of different options. You can use the injections, which are the medroxyprogesterone acetate injections, which can occur that cover, um, that can be cycled every, every three months. And they uh-huh. can be given either intramuscularly or subcu- uh, subcutaneously. Those cause really profound suppression of, of estrogen levels, but it certainly keeps the estrogens stable and extremely low. Alternatively, you can use the implants and there are progestin only implants that also Uh suppress ovulation, turn off that cycling. um, And those estrogen levels, the endogenous levels with the implants aren't quite as low. So you don't run the risk of the loss of bone density that you can sometimes see Uh with the, the, uh, the medroxyprogesterone acetate injections. So those are essentially your, your two options. With it, and I just want to repeat, the goal is to keep the estrogen level stable from day to day and unchanging, as well as to either by suppressing ovulation, keeping those estrogen levels low, or by supplementing with as low as possible the estrogen content of uh, the contraception. Thank you for that excellent summary. As you said, the stability is essential. The migraine brain likes stability in everything, including the endogenous and exogenous hormonal levels. Um, so thank you for summarizing that so well for us. It is wonderful to have a multidisciplinary team speak to the topic of migraine in women. Uh, We covered the importance of presentation of headache in women in relation to hormonal changes during the menstrual cycle, the presentation of menstrually related migraine and pure menstrual migraine and the perimenstrual attacks and both hormonal and non-hormonal approaches to treatment of these headaches. Dr. Hutchinson and Dr. Sticker, thank you so much for joining me for this chat today. I think we covered some really important points. I also really uh, enjoyed this this dialogue today. I agree. I have so much enjoyed this collaborative effort. I think it's so important to always know what's going on hormonally when we approach women in our practice who have migraine. You're so right. Um, This was a really compelling conversation. I would like us to continue this multidisciplinary work Thank you, everyone, for joining us for this special Women's Health episode. We'll see you next time. 
Thank you for tuning into this episode. Listeners can find additional information and doctor-verified resources about migraine treatment and management on the First Contact Headache and Primary Care website. Visit the site at AmericanHeadacheSociety.org slash primary care. This podcast is brought to you by the American Headache Society and made possible by Eli Lilly.